Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you for coming today. You look as beautiful and almost as intimidating as a Chem 105 class. From out the misery of a cold, dark, comfortless cell in Liberty, Missouri, Joseph Smith asked a poignant question which all of us, sooner or later, in our lives have asked or will ask. O God, where art thou? You know the story. Many of you have probably been to Liberty Jail. The saints have been driven from their homes, indeed from their state, in the cold of winter, and the whole church had been brought down to near destruction. In answer uh, to Joseph's question, what comfort did the Lord have to offer? If we turn to DNC 121, we find the answer. First, the Lord invokes the immensity of time. Thine afflictions, he says, shall be but a moment, and the hope of the enemies of the saints shall be blasted. Second, he comforts Joseph and the saints with promises of great knowledge. And third, he promises and uh, our promises and exhortations regarding priesthood. Now, we usually focus our attention in this section on this last point, but in fact, considerable emphasis is placed in the section on the comfort to be derived from knowledge. And it's about this that I'd like to speak today. Listen to these words. All thrones and dominions, principalities and powers, shall be revealed and set forth upon all who have endured valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, if there be bound set to the heavens, or to the seas, or to the dry land, or to the sun, moon, or stars, all the times of their revolutions, all the appointed days, months, and years, and all the days of their days, months, and years, and all their glories, laws, and set times, shall be revealed in the days of the dispensation of the fullness of times. How long can rolling waters remain impure? What power shall stay the heavens? As well might man stretch forth his puny arm to stop the Missouri River in its decreed course, or to turn it upstream, as to hinder the Almighty from pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the saints, upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. Now here we are at a great university, all of us focused on the quest for knowledge. From the passage that uh, we just read and others, it's clear that knowledge is something God values a great deal. In fact, when you think about it, helping each other grow in knowledge stands at the heart of most of what we do in the Church. When we attend meetings, participate in missionary work, attend the temple, listen to conference, participate in interviews, these activities are primarily focused 
on helping us grow in understanding and knowledge. Deep knowledge, that is. Knowledge that includes facts but goes far beyond to embrace wisdom, as discussed by Elder Oaks in a wonderful conference talk last spring, which I strongly suggest you go back and read. But let's get back to Joseph Smith's situation in Liberty Jail. What value and comfort do we find in knowledge? Surely we'd all agree that the knowledge uh, we have of the gospel itself can comfort and inspire. But can so-called secular knowledge do so as well? When you stop and think about it, it should. That is, when you consider that all truth comes from God. He doesn't make the distinction between sacred and secular truth. To him, it's all one. It's all truth. Let me uh, give you an example of the kind of comfort and inspiration I have found in my own life from what we might normally call secular knowledge as revealed in the latter days. Indeed, these are the very kinds of things that I've learned in just the kind of classes you might be taking at BYU right now. I'm amazed at the fulfillment of the promise given in DNC 121 that during the term of this dispensation, much will be revealed about the stars, planets, and the world in which we live. So when I'm camping at Lake Powell or somewhere else with my kids, I love to talk to them about these things. Our favorite time to do that is at night. Perhaps you can recall a time when you have found yourself outside the bounds of uh, the city on a clear night with no moon, no clouds. Close your eyes, if you would, and go back there with me right now. In your mind, imagine you look up. What do you see? A black sky full of stars? Does the sight not fill you with wonder? How many stars do you think you can see? I've asked this of different groups on different occasions, and I usually get answers that range all the way from thousands to millions. If you ask your local astronomer how many stars you can see, she'll tell you that it's about 10,000. The answer will vary a little depending on whom you ask, but it will be in that ballpark. And for thousands of years, that's how many stars it seemed there were. It's only in the last couple of hundred years that we've begun to realize how many stars there really are. Just as the Lord promised, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, new knowledge about our universe and our world is accumulating at a breathtaking and accelerating rate. Probably the most recent and dramatic improvement in our view of the universe, the real scope of the universe, results from the launching and subsequent fixing, of course, of the Hubble Space Telescope. Now we look at a patch of sky that before looked like a little black empty dot, and we find that it's full, not just of stars, but of galaxies, each of which has hundreds of billions of stars in it. That's billions with a B. So uh, what's the answer to our question then? How many stars are there? Well, brace yourselves because the answer is really, truly awe-inspiring. 
Again, depending on whom you ask, you'll get an answer something like this. There are about 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and there are about 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. Now, that answer merits some real pondering, I think. Unfortunately, we've become rather glib about big numbers nowadays, with national debts in the trillions and gigabytes on our computer. These numbers roll off the tongue easily enough, but what do they mean? Even on the surface, I suppose, you can tell that we're talking about a lot of stars. But how can we get a real feel for what these numbers mean and what's involved? The difficulty reminds me a little of some verses that we find in LDS scripture that also speak of the immense number of worlds in the cosmos. First, let's turn to Enoch, who is shown the cosmos and says, And were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations, and thy curtains are stretched out still. A little later in history, Abraham has a similar experience. He says this, Thus I, Abraham, talked with the Lord face to face, as one man talketh with another. And he told me of the works which his hands had made. And he said unto me, My son, my son, and his hand was stretched out still. Behold, I will show you all these. And he put his hand upon mine eyes, and I saw those things which his hands had made, which were many, and they multiplied before mine eyes, and I could not see the end thereof. A few hundred years later, Moses has a similar experience. And he beheld also the inhabitants thereof, and there was not a soul which he beheld not, talking of the earth. And he discerned them by the Spirit of God. And their numbers were great, even numberless, as the sands upon the seashore. And he beheld many lands, and each land was called earth, and there were inhabitants on the face thereof. Now, it's interesting that repeatedly in Scripture, when the Lord is trying to help us imagine huge numbers of things, he alludes to grains of sand on the beach. And there's another reason that this particular metaphor is especially fascinating to me, because it pops up in another entirely unrelated spot. In his series, Cosmos, a scientist who is, in fact, not a believer, Carl Sagan, tries to help the viewer understand the enormous number of stars that there are. Lo and behold, he states that the number of stars in the known universe is greater than the number of grains of sand on all the beaches of the planet Earth. Now, when I first heard that, I have to admit that I did a double-take. I'm from Missouri, as are most scientists. Actually, I'm from Canada, but uh, you know what I mean. I wanted to be shown that this was really true. So I did my own calculations uh, using outlandish amounts of beach property on the earth and the average depth of a beach and so on. And in fact, there's something that you can actually try at home, and I'd suggest that you do it. So try it. 
And if you do, I think that you'll be astonished to find that Carl's about right. Imagine how many stars that represents. Imagine standing on a huge beach with the sand stretching out in front of you for miles. Reach down and gather up a handful of sand and imagine trying to count just the number of grains of sand in your hand. Now imagine all the sand on all the beaches. That's how many stars there are. This is a really awesome thought. Does it inspire you? It does me. Does just thinking about it take your mind off your problems a little bit? It does for me. And perhaps this is what God was talking about when he gave the promise of great knowledge to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail as a source of love and comfort. Remember the hymn we sang last week right here? O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, then what does my, do my soul do? My soul sings. You know, it's hard to stay discouraged when your soul is singing. It's hard to look at the night sky and think of the scale of the universe and be depressed. What mankind has learned about the stars has become a source of both comfort and inspiration. And chances are you'll, you'll never look at the night sky again without thinking about these things. Now, the whole idea, this whole idea about the scale of the universe is so fun to contemplate. Let's look at it just one more time from another perspective. You're the captain of the Starship Enterprise. You've set out to explore the universe, to go where no man in the case of James T. Kirk or no one in the case of John Blue Picard has gone before. Time's update. You wish to identify all the inhabited solar systems in the universe, okay? Sounds like a good way to spend your life, and so you set out. But you have an important advantage over these other captains. You have a new supercharged enterprise that can ignore all the effects of, of uh, relativity and acceleration and get from one star to another in one second. You then have one second to explore that solar system and move on to the next. You begin your exploration the second you are born. You're a very precocious child. <laughs> and you continue it nonstop for your 100-year lifespan. Day in, day out. One second here. Next second, you're at the next solar system. Next second, you're at the next solar system. You don't stop for lunch or to sleep or to open your Christmas presents. How many stars do you think you will have visited by the end of your journey? It turns out only about 1.5 billion. How discouraging. You worked really hard and you've only managed to visit less than 1% of the stars in our own galaxy, and that's not taking into account the other 100 billion galaxies that there are out there. So how long would it take to visit all the stars at this rate, do you suppose? Oh, about 100 trillion years. Now, no thinking human being can come up against these newly revealed truths without feeling a sense of awe at the vastness and complexity of our universe.
For us, as Latter-day Saints, this kind of insight comprises a striking testimony of the greatness of God's power. Others, like Sagan, feel the awe and wonder, but are not convinced. One might ask, why the difference? Well, because we don't derive our testimonies from the wonders of nature, but our testimonies come from the voice of the Spirit to our hearts. But having received the witness, the awe we feel finds a comfortable home in our testimonies. It reinforces faith, and it confirms and enlarges what we already know to be true. So keeping this kind of perspective, then, inspires us and helps us to endure the challenges of life. Yes, sometimes great suffering, just as Joseph was able to endure in Liberty Jail. When we look at the night sky and in many other ways, the wonders of nature bear witness to us day in and day out of a Heavenly Father who brings order to all we see around us. Ask yourself, how often do you stop to listen to these witnesses? If you're like me, the answer is not often enough. That's unfortunate, because every time I do, I am healed. Every time I do, I grow in appreciation of God's great plan in which all of nature participates, and it heartens me to know that I, together with you, lie at the center of that plan. Just think that all this vast creation was made for you and me. Doesn't that make you feel both humble and wonderful at the same time? Now, we've talked about the majesty of God's creations on the scale of the very large, but there's just as much to be said, and it's just as amazing to look at nature from the other end of the spectrum on the scale of the very small. Take just one of those grains of sand that we talked about earlier. Even this is a true marvel of complexity. Each grain contains about the same number of atoms as there are stars in the known universe. They're arranged in neat rows, linked by electrons that dance in amazing wheels of choreography. If you were the size of an atom and looked about you within one of these tiny stones, you would see rank upon rank of atoms lined up like soldiers on parade, extending out as far as the eye could see, in all directions. In fact, at this scale, you could journey for months through the matrix and never find the edge. You would be in a little world which seemed to go on forever. Now, the world of atoms, as depicted in those $100 chemtechs you buy at the bookstore, looks static and lifeless. But the real world of atoms would be in constant motion, the atoms jiggling and colliding and forming and breaking bonds in a frenzied kaleidoscope of constant change. Only now are we beginning to be able to depict how this world works and looks. Newly revealed knowledge of the miniature world presents another witness, a tiny but powerful witness to the grandeur of God's laws and the care with which he has designed this amazing world in which we live. And then there is you. Believe it or not, as befits a child of God, your body is the most complex system in the whole universe. The more we learn about the cells that make you up and the biochemical processes 
that make you function, the more awe-inspiring you become. Every cell in your body is an amazing little world of its own, with gates and walls, sophisticated chemical factories, with a central government, complex communication system, on and on. If you could be the size of a protein molecule and set out to explore a single cell in your body, you could spend a lifetime observing all the comings and goings and the busy activity and never run out of interesting things, new things to see. The experience, in fact, would make Disneyland look pale by comparison. And you have a hundred trillion such cells in your body of innumerable different kinds. Anyone who has seen a video of circulating blood knows what a complex and awe-inspiring sight it is to see a living system in operation at the cellular level. Again, we share the sense of awe with non-believers. Sagan says, quote, we are each of us a multitude. Within us is a little universe, unquote. For Latter-day Saints, the complexity of the biological world provides another witness of the greatness of our Father in Heaven and His creative genius. As time goes by and we learn more and more about the cosmos on the scale of both the large and the small, knowledge that I would uh, assert comes from our Heavenly Father, the more we find so-called secular and religious truth coming together to bear witness of our Father's great plan. All of this vast, complex universe has been designed for a purpose, one that includes us as very important players. Mormonism is the only Christian religion I know which adopts the doctrine that the earth is part of a vast civilization that spans the universe that men and women are passing through one natural phase in the life cycle of eternal beings who populate the universe in a planned, organized fashion. Think of all the great knowledge that has been poured out in the dispensation of the fullness of times, as prophesied in DNC 121. These truths, both sacred and secular, are an ever-expanding testimony of this marvelous plan. Everywhere we look, both on the scale of the very large and on the scale of the very small, witnesses in nature speak to us of our own place in the grand scheme of life. Knowledge of this plan makes it possible for us to adopt, to adopt an eternal perspective which is otherwise impossible to achieve. We see life and the problems that we face from a whole new angle. And this offers us a sense of hope that goes beyond the confines of this world. It is indeed reassuring to know that there is a plan behind the seeming chaos in which we are immersed, that there is a master who loves us and who is in control of all things from the greatest to the least. Look about you and you will see God all around. In the Lord's own words, all kingdoms have a law given, and there are many kingdoms, for there is no space in which there is no kingdom, and there is no kingdom in which there is no space, either a greater or a lesser kingdom. 
And unto every kingdom is given a law, and unto every law there are certain bounds also and conditions. Behold, all these are kingdoms, and any man who hath seen any or the least of these hath seen God moving in his majesty and power. Now, in conclusion, let's consider the most awesome thought of all, that through the power of the Atonement we can be joint heirs with Christ and can inherit all this, that is, all that the Father hath, DNC 84. How much is it that the Father hath? Well, Enoch, Abraham, and Moses had an idea because it was shown to them. We have their testimonies, but I think we've only begun to catch the real vision in recent years. What the Father hath is an awful lot. And as joint heirs with Christ, to think it could all be ours one day. What a source of comfort and strength, that is, of hope that whatever we have to endure, it is worth it. All that the Father hath can be ours. I'm humbled by that prospect. Look what is in store for us if we live worthy of it. Look at all we stand to lose if we fail. With all that we know, how can we hesitate to do everything it takes to sacrifice all we have to sacrifice to obtain those blessings? Now, perhaps you find yourself facing great adversity in your life, as did Brother Joseph in Liberty Jail. Perhaps you have felt to cry out, O God, where art thou? As he did. The Lord has sent you comfort, many sources of comfort and inspiration, not the least of which are witnesses in stars and stones that he lives, that he loves you. <clears throat> And that he has set in place a plan by which all that he has created can be yours if you will but have faith and endure. That we will do so and find great joy therein is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.